Hi, everybody. I'm Sheldon from an alcoholic. And I'm trying really hard to give up taking credit for miracles, so I won't take any credit for our life at home. We, uh, we are truly blessed because of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is a, 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 a big deal, getting to uh, participate at, uh, at this conference. I, uh, I'm lucky enough and, and, and blessed enough and honored enough to be asked um, to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous from time to time at different conferences and events, but to be here with you guys is, uh, is very special for me. I'm on a, a program with people who I've been listening to ever since the first day I got sober. I, uh, I look at my name on the list of speakers this weekend and I feel terribly out of place. It is a, a real honor to be here. I, I really enjoyed everybody's talk so far. And, uh, Ron, I clean up pretty well, too. You know? Neither of us will ever look as good as Mildred or Katie, but we're, we're doing pretty good, aren't we? We're, we're doing pretty good. I, um, step four, I, I remember when I was brand new in Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and maybe you guys had the same experience, but I'm, I'm sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm, I'm trying to get sober, and I'm a slipper. I'm a in-and-out kind of guy. I'm the guy that comes to Alcoholics Anonymous, stays sober for a couple of three or four weeks, and then gets drunk. And then I go out there and I drink until I can't stand it no more, and I get chased back into Alcoholics Anonymous. And this time I really mean it. This time it's different. All right? And I'm going to stay sober. I'm going to do everything I can. And, and maybe I sit with someone and we talk about step one. And then I drink. And then I come back, and I'm driven back in the rooms. And maybe we talk about step two, and I drink. And maybe we talk about step three, and I drink. And it was explained to me that what I was doing is something that lots of people in Alcoholics Anonymous have been doing ever since Alcoholics Anonymous first was formed, and it's that one, two, three, drink, the AA waltz. One, two, three, drink. One, two, three, drink. And, and I did that for a long time. And I don't understand why it is that I keep going back and drinking. I don't understand why it is that some of you come to Alcoholics Anonymous and you put the plug in the jug and you get up at a podium and you get your best suit on and you say, my name's Sheldon, I'm an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink for a while. My life's great. Thanks for letting me share it. I'm thinking bully for you. I haven't had a drink for a long time either. We're up to 63 days. <laughs> and, and I'm in agony, and my life ain't getting good, and if someone don't change, I'm going to go drink again. And not because I want to, not because I'm playing, but because I'm driven by something that I can't stop. I got, I got this thing that I love how Bill describes it. It, it's like the most benign-sounding phrase, this restless, irritable discontent. I'm losing my mind. I mean, I just, whew, I, if, I, if this is what sobriety feels like, I, it ain't for me. I got this perception problem that when I'm talking to a guy that's 20 years sober, what I think is that for 20 years... He's not going to drink, not going to drink, not going to drink, not going to drink. I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink. I ribble it out. I, I am going to stay sober. I really am. Because <laughs> that's the only perception that I have. That's how I'm staying sober. And I think these guys that are 20 years sober have lived like that. And I'm thinking, poor guy. You know? I mean, what is wrong with you? And then you brag about it. You know? You're a nut is what you are. 
And then people in Alcoholics Anonymous give me the answer. They say, you know, I'm sober today, and I am sober today by the grace of God. I'm sober today because I found a power in Alcoholics Anonymous sufficient to give me relief from the thing that was driving me back to drink. And I found this power in Alcoholics Anonymous. I choose to call him God, and I'm not this real holy roller type, but, but it's a, I call him God, you know who I'm talking about, right? It's just kind of this easy word to use. And I, but I got this power in my life, and, and that's what enables me to stay sober. And I'm thinking, I did a second step. I prayed a third step. I should have found God. And sometimes in some meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, people will give you a second or a third step pitch. And you're left with the idea that you should find God in step two or step three. If that was the case, we'd have a four-step program. Step one, I'm powerless. Step two, I need a power. Step three, say the prayer. Step four, go hit on newcomer girls. All right? Because I got God now. I got God in step three. I'm done. I could, I can go on to something else. Maybe sell Amway. You know? Anybody need any soap or lipstick? You know? I mean, I, maybe I could do that. I, but I, but I don't find God there in my experience. In my experience, I got something blocking me from finding God. Something that's in the way. Something that's shutting me down. And I've tried. You know, I'm a Jewish kid and I, and, and, and I, I grew up in this eighth, weird atheist agnostic Jewish home. Which really what that means is that we know we're wrong. We, we, we know the Jewish faith is full of beans. We're less wrong than you. You're completely crazy. And, and you grow up in this home like this, and they tell you you got to find God, and I get real confused, and I try all kinds of things. But so much so, I get so desperate that at one point, I'm talking to this guy who's got real strong faith. He's real strong Christian faith, and he gives me this thing called a sinner's prayer. And I'm dying, and I, I'm, I'm this guy now that... When I'm at home by myself, I'm crying a lot. I'm, I'm doing a lot of drinking. I'm doing a lot of the other stuff. And I'm crying a lot. And I'm just depressed. And I, I'm suicidal but a coward, which is a very hard combination to live with, you know. I, I'm just, I'm a wreck. And I, I'm in the shower and I think, oh, this prayer. And I get out of the shower and I'm dripping wet. And I grab this prayer and I start reading this prayer. And water's dripping off me and the words are running. And I'm crying and I'm telling you I mean it. I mean it in a way that I mean it. Like, like I've never meant nothing in my life. I mean it. And I say this prayer. And I get off my knees. And I look around. <laughs> nothing. No angels, no harps, no bright lights, nothing. You know? I was never good with creeper weed. You know the stuff you take three hits, you wait an hour, you get stoned? I was never good. I smoked the whole bag and fall asleep. Because I... I need something now, you know. I need to get lit. And I say that sinner's prayer and I don't get lit. And I understand that God don't work for a guy like me. But, but that's okay. Because I don't like me either. Why the hell would God like me? I don't like me either for crying out loud. I'm not good enough for any of that stuff. I get sober this last time. And I didn't tell you my sobriety date. It was July 17, 1996. And, and, and that's the day that my life began. And... Uh, I get sober in July of 96, and I'm, I'm talking to my sponsor, and, 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 and I've got this real clear memory. And I said to him, I'm a couple of weeks sober, and I said, look, man, I said, I've done one, two, and three. And if that's all you got, I'm going to go drink. And he handed me a, a, a worksheet that he'd written to help guys do the fall step, and he, it was right out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It wasn't anything other than what's in our book. And he said, 
I want you to go and start work on this right away. I want you to call me as you go through the process, and we're going to go through the process. That's exactly what the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says. It says, gives me kind of this weird timeline of when to start this thing. It says, next we launched. So, so right away, next we launched. I, I never knew that. I thought a step a year was the right kind of deal, you know, but, but, but you can't launch slowly. You imagine like, you know, I mean, what's the, what's the slowest you could launch? Ten, nine, eight. It's still pretty quick, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know. So, so he said, next we launched and we're going to do this work. And the reason we're going to do this work is because, you know, I've heard this cliche in AA. Maybe you've heard this thing where when you do step three and you say, well, I can't turn my life over to God. And the old timer kind of laughs at you and he says, well, you know, it's only a decision, right? Three frogs on a log. You ever heard this one? One jumps off. How many frogs are on the log? And you go two. And they go, no, only three, still three, because it was only a decision. Oh, well, I believe that if the frog ever took step six, you'd hear a splash, right? Because that's what I'm willing to act like God's in my life. So how do I get from three to six? What's the journey that takes me from a guy that's willing to have God be in my life to a guy that's actually doing work and acting like a guy that's got God in his life? What's the journey from three to six? And the journey is what we're going to try and cover in a short amount of time today is the journey that I take, hopefully a little bit, begin from here to here. You know, in step three, I was laughing, step three, and Katie did a fantastic job of step three, fantastic job. In step three, I thought I was going to read narrative about how I get to God, and I don't. I read narrative of selfishness and self-centeredness. I read a narrative about why I better find one. That's what I read in step three, because, because God, you know, God ain't lost, and he's going to show up when I'm willing for him to show up. What I read in step three is a narrative about why a guy like me better find God. I'm selfish, self-centered, self-obsessed. I'm trying to run the show. I'm all this stuff that Katie talked about, and it, and it ain't working. You know, I'm a nut. I mean, if it was working, I wouldn't have been in that club in July 96 looking for help. You know, how you doing? Everything's fine. I drink a little too much, but everything else is fine. You know, it, it wasn't working. So how do I go about taking this action? And we're very, very blessed that we have what, what Bill calls clear-cut directions. Nothing is left up to guess here. You know, I first hear about the false step in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hear a couple of things from the fellowship. First thing I hear is, just wait. Till you do your full step. Oh, my God. And, and I'm already terrified of you people, you know. And now I'm like, oh, God. And then the other thing I hear is, and if you don't do it right, you'll die. <laughs> Be afraid and prepare to die is what I heard. <laughs> and here's 18 different ways you can do one. I got one from my psychiatrist, got one from my, from my therapist, got one from my treatment center, got one from my sponsor that had never read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, got one from the fellowship. There's 19 different ways to work a false step, and if you don't do it right, you're dead. Great. I was directed to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was told, Sheldon, if your problem is alcoholism, the solution is in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Do that first. 
If you still need any help afterwards, then we can go look for some. But at least first, let's treat your alcoholism with Alcoholics Anonymous. You might need more later. You might not. My experience is that I didn't. But start with Alcoholics Anonymous. So it says in our big book, it says that we've got to do this because if we didn't, it could have, our third step could have little permanent effect. And, you know, we tell this lie to each other in AA. I'm just sober one day at a time. Like, all I care about is till midnight, right? I mean, I do stay sober one day at a time. The work I do, the actions I take, the one I'm focused on, why I stay sober. I'm not going to worry about if I'm going to be sober in three years. I'm worried about being sober today. But I want to stay sober one day at a time forever. I got a nine-year-old kid. I want to be sober at his wedding. I mean, let's not kid, kid ourselves. I want permanent sobriety one day at a time. And this can have little permanent effect unless it once followed by a strenuous effort to get rid of the things inside of ourselves that have been blocking us. I better do this because otherwise what's going to happen is what's happened every other time I've come into AA. I'm going to show up. I'm going to be so help. I need help. A month later, the buzz of doing a third step is going to wear off. I'm going to be locked in self, and I'm going to have to go again. So I better do the work so I can permanently stay sober one day at a time. That's what I'm looking for. One day at a time forever is what I'm looking for. It can have little permanent effect unless we're rid of the things in ourselves. And hopefully in step three, we've learned that I can't fix me by fixing the outside. Hopefully the lessons that I learned in that 60 through 63 is that whatever's going to happen to make me be okay is going to have to happen inside me. Hopefully I've burned out the idea that the new car, new job, new girl will fix me. Hopefully I've wore out the idea that if my mom would just stop treating me that way, then I'd be okay. Hopefully I learned those lessons in step three and that now I'm, I'm done trying to fix my insides with the outsides. Now I'm going to start trying to get the insides in a place where God can live. And I can get to be okay. So we're going to get rid of the things inside of ourselves that have been blocking us. Blocking us from what? From carrying out this third step. Blocking me from being in touch with God. So, okay, so I get that it's important. I get that I'm going to do this. And, and what's going to happen is that I'm going to discover things about myself that I didn't know. The book calls it a fact-finding and fact-facing process. I'm going to learn things about me that I didn't know. So just doing this life story version that I had heard, if I could just tell you that, you know, I was born at a very young age. To, you know, I had, I had both a mom and a dad. One was a girl, one was a boy. And kind of tell you the whole story that way, that that's not going to work for me because I already know all that stuff about me. I'm going to have to learn something new about me. I'm going to have to discover, the book says, the truth about the stock and trade. It says that I have to get rid of damage or unsaleable goods. And hopefully through step three, I've taken a look at the way I look at the world. And I can see that the way I'm looking at the world doesn't work. I can't, boom, get a new perception. I can't click my fingers or, or, or tap my heels together. I can't do that stuff. There is no magic that will, oh, thank you. I'm so glad you told me that selfishness is the problem. I won't be that anymore. I mean, I, I, you know, and then I'm going to sit at home and self-obsess on whether or not I'm selfish. You know, call my friends. Do you think that was selfish? Was that selfish? Am I being selfish? It's just, it's just madness, right? I just, so obviously I can't, I can't do that, but I understand there's got to be a new way for me to look at the world, and I have to find this new perception. And if I'm going to do this, I love this line. The book says that he cannot fool himself about values. 
I, I, I have been fooling myself about values all of my life. Uh, I valued uh, what I thought you think of me. I valued that. I thought that was important. I valued how I looked. Very, very important. I valued whether or not I believed the people I was hanging out with were the right stature. I valued all kinds of things that were, that were value-less that I valued. And you can always tell when I'm getting in trouble. Because I get this phrase that I say, when I'm in the most trouble, and this is like not a little trouble, this is when I'm, I'm ready to fall off the, the turnip truck, I say this one, but you don't understand. It's the principle of the thing. Oh, you might as well shoot me. You might as well shoot me. And I can't fool myself about values anymore. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to do this at a gut level. I'm going to need some help, and I'm going to have to look at some things that, quite frankly, I don't want to look at. And, and how am I going to do that? And I'm going to follow these clear-cut directions, and they're so simple and so easy and so basic. It says in the book that resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. Because when I get upset and I get angry and I get that thing inside of me, you ever been in a meeting when you got, you're upset and you're angry? You ever done that and you can't hear nothing? You know? And then, and then I can't control when I'm angry. If I get angry at my boss, I come home and treat my wife bad. If I'm angry at my boss, I treat my co-workers or the guy at the groceries. I'm not the kind of guy that could say, I really hate my boss. I really hate my boss. Oh, hi. How are you? Nice to see you. How have you been? I really hate my boss. I really hate my boss. It just doesn't work that way for me. When I get angry and I get resentful, I get shut off from everything. And I can't get close to God and I can't get close to you and I can't get close to anything. So resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease. For we have not only been mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. I have been sick of spirit. Someone talked this morning, I think it was Mildred that talked this morning about the capital S and the spirit that we drank and that we drank because our spirit was sickened inside. I, I, could, I couldn't really understand what you guys were talking about when you talked about a disease in Alcoholics Anonymous until you told me that my spirit was sickened. And I'd been depressed and sad for a long time. And when you're depressed and you're sad for a long time, it starts to wear on you physically and mentally, and you start to shut yourself off from the world. I saw a movie, and this is not AA-approved stuff at all, but it was a great movie that lit me up, um, where there was a part in this movie about a guy called Dr. Emoto. This guy was a, a, a Japanese scientist. And he had taken some water from a pure Japanese stream. It was blast stream. And he had frozen this stuff in a, in a, some kind of liquid nitrogen kind of special freezing way. But before he did that, he put little stickies on this file. And one sticky was the Japanese love prayer. And another one was Japanese words for hate and anger. And then they prayed over the love prayer and they yelled at the anger one. And they freeze this water, same water. And then they cut it with a, a laser and put it under a, a super powerful magnifying glass. Micro, I should ask Charlie the right words, but they, they put it under a, a, a microscope so they, so you can, you can look at the, the structure of the cells of this water. And the, the water that had been prayed over and the love sonnet was on 
was beautiful concentric circles, really just just caught, beautiful, beautiful way to look at it. The water that had been yelled at was broken and fractured and angry. And one of the guys says to this girl when they were looking at this, that if negative thoughts and prayers can do that to water, what must it do to us? Because we're 90% water. And I thought, you know, when you live the way that I lived, and you had the fears and the anger and the, and the upset that I had and the resentments, and you felt the way that I felt, is it any wonder that I became sicker and sicker and sicker as time went on? So I've got these resentments, and it asked me, what am I going to do with them? It says, in dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. This is really cool, because this is clear-cut direction, really easy stuff. We set them on paper. We listed the people, institutions, and principles with whom we were angry. So we just write this list. I'm angry at boom, 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 boom. When I first did my post-step, I was afraid of writing that list because I didn't know who was supposed to go on there. I'm going to give you a little secret if you haven't done your post-step. They're all the same. We could write the first ten names for you. You know, it generally goes uh, uh, mom, dad, siblings, current spouse, current boss, past spouse, past boss, and then trickles down to everybody you've had any insignificant contact with your entire pathetic life. So, <clears throat> so we could, we could, we could, we could write the list for you. We don't because it's fun to watch you squirm, you know. <laughs> Being a sponsor takes a lot of time. We got to get the joy when we can, you know. So, so we could write the list. We don't write the list. We let you write the list. And then, and then, and then we, we ask ourselves why we were angry. We ask ourselves why. What did they do? What was it that they did? And, you know, I start writing this, and I probably got a couple of things that are, that are some serious stuff that people did. And then it starts to get kind of pathetic. I start to get embarrassed about this stuff. Snubbed me at the dance. Fourteen years ago. <laughs> Didn't pick me for soccer 36 years ago. (laughs) On purpose. (laughs) But I write all this stuff down. And then I ask myself what was affected. And we look at the, the list of things in the book that it suggests that we look at. It says what was heard or threatened. It later on uses a word interfered with. And it asks us, was it our self-esteem? My self-esteem, I've come to believe, is, is not what I think of me, because I don't think very much of me. It's what I think you think of me, is what I imagine my self-esteem to be. Because that has real power in my life. That changes from person to person and situation to situation. has real power in my life. Security. Emotional security, financial security, whether or not I feel safe, ambitions or getting my own way, personal relationships, sexual relationships that have been interfered with. So what did this person do that made me crazy about him, that made me angry about him? And we write this whole list of all these people and we go through this stuff. And, and, and oftentimes we need help of a sponsor to do this. Oftentimes we need help of a sponsor to do this. We write the list. The bottom of, uh, of 65, it says, we went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. I've had guys say to me, I can't do my false step. I can't spell. Well, let's check the book. No, nope, spelling's not on the list. 
Only thoroughness and honesty. You know? <laughs> you know, my penmanship's bad. Oh, well, good. It's not a criteria. You know, I had one guy come to me when I was newly sober, one of the first few guys I sponsored. He brought me an Excel spreadsheet filled out on the computer every foster. I thought it was hysterical. The last inventory I did was on an Excel spreadsheet. Because since then, I learned how to use Excel, and it's cool. <laughs> Back then, it was stupid and pointless, and why would anybody waste the time? But now I know how to use the software. I dig it, you know. Nothing counts but thoroughness and honesty. The, we considered it carefully when we were done with the list. The first thing that was apparent was that the world and its people were often quite wrong. No new information there. <laughs> I knew the world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. You ask me what's wrong with my life, and it will start out with the person's name or the name of a company or a job that I have. What's wrong with me? I'll tell you what's wrong with me. My dad's what's wrong with me. My boss is what's wrong with me. My wife's what's wrong with me. You're what's wrong with me. It is never, well, let me tell you what I've been doing. Right? The first thing that's apparent is the, the conclude that others are wrong as far as ever's got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. That the world continues in my perception to treat me wrong. And the more wrong that I feel they've treated me, the worse it gets. And the worse it gets, the less I trust anybody. And the less I trust anybody and the bigger the walls are built up and the further judgment that I have. And I tell you, I get crazy and I can't let anybody get close to me. And I wonder when I get to AA why I feel lonely. Right? I mean, I didn't know it till I got here when you explained what loneliness was. And I'm dying of loneliness. The book later on says, and the loneliness settled down, ever becoming blacker. Is it ever a wonder that I'm lonely when I won't let any of you get near me because I hate every last one of you? It is hard to not be lonely when you hate the world, right? But I hate the world, and I got this wall built up of judgment and fear and anger and upset and of the way you're treating me. And the book said it is plain that any life which includes deep resentful, resentment leads only to futility and, and, and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile? You know, to as simple of a deal as, Sheldon, would you like to come to dinner at our house? No. And then I sit at home during the time we would have been eating dinner thinking, what an ass you are. Right? Because I don't like you. Because I'm afraid of you. To all the way up to the hours I spend in bed at night running this stuff through my head. At my office when I should be working. Daydreaming. When I try to pray. Dear God. Sheldon here. I got to go to work today with those people. You know the ones. Well, there's that guy, the way he treats me, and I hate him. And then there's her. And do you remember last week? And I can't even pray for crying out loud without all this stuff in my head. But with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. Infinite. Sounds serious. I might die infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. Another death word. We found it is fatal. For in harboring such feelings, 
We shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. God can't get through. Sober to the day by the grace of God. Sober to the day because I found a power greater than myself. But when harboring such feelings, I'm shut off from the thing that is enabling me to feel okay and stay sober. Harboring such feelings, the insanity of alcohol returns. We drink again. And with us, to drink is to die. And I still don't get it. <laughs> but I got to do it. Because if I don't, I'm going to go drink again. From my experience, I'm going to go drink again. From my experience, what's going to start as a low-level depression, as a slight uncomfortability, as a little restless, irritable, and discontented is going to grow to something inside me where eventually the people inside Alcoholics Anonymous are as big a losers as the people outside Alcoholics Anonymous. That setting up chairs and making coffee is well below my standard. And quite frankly, I got here all by myself, and I don't need you people anyway, and you're all a bunch of lunatics, and I'm going to go drink. Because that's what I got to do. That's what I got to do. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They were the dubious luxury of normal men. But for the alcoholic, these things were poison. We turned back to the list that held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an in, a diff, entirely different angle. Prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. What would be an entirely different angle from anything that I've ever done? It will be to look at it from the point of view of what it was like for you. Because I've only ever looked at anything from what it was like for me. Right? I mean, I'm in the middle of my life. There's nothing I can do about that. Everywhere I look, I'm in the center. Right? Nothing I can do about that. But I'm an extreme example of self-centeredness gone wild. I'm way, I'm just, I never consider, inconsiderate. I don't think about what your feelings might be. I'm concerned with what kind of dad my dad was. I never even stopped to imagine what kind of son I was. Never entered my head. I never had a conversation with my friends about what kind of employee I am. They all know what kind of boss I got. <laughs> you know? I have never looked. But hopefully, it's kind of a throwaway line in the middle. Because hopefully, I learned these lessons in step three. It's almost like we're being asked to check, did you really get it in 60 through 63? Are you willing? Are you prepared? Because it's not going to be easy. Are you prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle? So I got this list. I just got these names on it, and my fourth step was no different than anybody else's. My dad was the first name on the list. My dad left when I was two years old. Uh, uh, we were a small Jewish community in, a, in, a, in an area of the north of England, which is where I was born, where in that time, in uh, um, 1970, 1971, it was very uncommon for Jewish families to get divorced. It just was. It was one of those those pockets where divorce hadn't become fashionable yet and you didn't get divorced and my folks did and we were odd. It was also a community where the people in the Jewish community had done pretty well, most of them financially. They were a hard-working bunch of guys. And when my dad left, he left us as a welfare family. My mom went on welfare and I moved from a Jewish part of town to a non-Jewish part of town. And i got to tell you, I hated my dad. My dad ruined my life. He really did. I had to deal with a lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of prejudice. I was in the wrong community. I was the wrong guy on the wrong block. I'm living on, in a welfare household, and, and my dad did this to me. 
and I hated my dad. My dad says to me, Shelton, I never left you. I only left your mother. And I said, liar, because there were a couple of other divorced families and the dad stayed in town. And he was there for the ball games and the events and the stuff. My dad left and went to Southern California from England. He moved 6,000 miles away. He left me. And I hated my dad. You want to know why I'm an alcoholic? I'll tell you why. It's because that SOB left. And if you'd have had my dad leave and you'd have lived with what he left my mom to be, you'd have drank too. And I hated my dad. And I show up at my sponsor's house with my dad on the list. Now, you know, he didn't stay around and beat me, and he didn't treat me in ways that some folks have been treated by their parents. And, and I understand that, that what happened to me wasn't that big of a deal, but you have to remember the key part here. It happened to me. <laughs> and, and that made it really bad. <laughs> if it would have happened to you, I'd have told you to get over it, for God's sakes, you know. But it happened to me, and that made it a big deal. Right? So, so he's gone, and uh, and I hate him. And I get to my sponsor's house, and we start on my first step, and uh, he says, "Well, you know, your dad did the best for you he could with the tools he had to work with." And I said, "Bullshit! Get new tools." I was two years old. I'm not playing. And he whips out some other spiritual mantras that they teach in sponsor school. And I get a tell you, I got a great sponsor. You know, but Bob is my sponsor. I got a great sponsor. But he's trying all this stuff on me about my dad, and I ain't hearing it. Because I can't hear it. Because I hate my dad. And you don't understand. I've heard your story. Your dad loved you till he nearly killed you. My dad left. I ain't playing. I ain't playing. So he does the only thing he can. He moves on to my mom. Tell me about your mom, Sheldon. Well, when my dad left, my mom got a little odd. She got very upset and angry. and She'd yell and scream a lot. She was very difficult to live with. She'd get manic depressive a lot. She was a screamer and a yeller. And she just, it was very difficult. I looked like my dad, sound like my dad, act like my dad. She'd say things to me like, oh, you're just like your father. And then five minutes later, I'd catch her crying about how my father ruined her life. I think, you miserable woman. I'm ruining your life too, aren't I? And it just was very difficult. Very difficult. My mom since, by the way, um, has become an active member of Al-Anon. She uh, got on a, with help from a doctor, got on a course of medication that helped her. You can tell she's not an alcoholic. Because after 20 weeks, she put down the bottle. I'm not going to go there either, Katie. I'm going to leave that alone, too. But she didn't take him forever, because only alcoholics do that, I think, right? Yeah. But anyway, she got some pills. She got some help. She threw Alan on. I love Alan on. Alan helped my mom. My mom and I are very close today. But at the time, living with her was very difficult. And we start talking about what it says here in the book. And it says, this was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. My mom was definitely spiritually sick. It was very easy to see that what my mom suffered from made her suffer. I would catch her crying, and I have clear memories of multiple times of, I'm just so mean to you kids, and I don't know why, and I wish I could stop it. She was sincere, you know? And she still does it today for crying out loud. You don't have to stop her and go, 
I'll get a I'll get a ticket, right, for driving too fast. And she go, if I was better than you kids, I go, I know, mom, it's your fault. I got the ticket. I know. Well, here, pay it. You know, if you still you still want to keep that crap, you're welcome to it. You know, it's 171 dollars to justice court. You know, off you go. But 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 I I catch her crying about how mean she was to us kids, and it was clear that she suffered. She suffered spiritually. In, in her own way. And though we didn't like her symptoms, and I didn't like her symptoms, all the way they disturbed me, it made my life very difficult. I didn't like it at all. They, like ourselves, were sick too. I heard a speaker tape four or five years ago, and I, I, I don't know the guy's name, but it really had a lot of power when he said, it was a book study, he said, they, like ourselves, were sick too. Not like the well looking at the sick, but like the sick looking at the sick. See, if you got a bad disease, a heart disease or cancer or something, you go, I got cancer, and I don't have cancer, I'm going to say, oh, I'm so sorry, you poor thing. That must be terrible. And I'm going to have a sense of better than, I don't want it. It's not something I look for, but just inside me, something's going to go, oh, thank God I don't have cancer. But if I got cancer and you say you got cancer, we got something to talk about. Oh, man. What are we going to do? we got a connection. Like the sick looking at the sick. That she, like me, was sick. I tell you something. I love cliches in AA. One of my favorite ones is we're not bad people trying to get good. We're sick people trying to get well because it kind of lets us off the hook a little bit. All right? And I like being off the hook. You know, I do. I dig it. You know? And I believe, I do, but I believe this with all my heart that some of the stuff, a lot of the stuff I did while drinking, right, I'm not guilty for. I was drunk. I was driven by a disease. I'm not a bad guy. I'm a sick guy. I was driven by a disease. And I'm not guilty for that stuff now. I'm responsible. And we're going to talk about the responsibility step later. So don't anybody misunderstand what I'm saying. i got to make amends for all of it, drunk or sober. I'm responsible. But I'm not guilty for that. But if I want to have that little bit of forgiveness that the universe gives sick people for behaving sick, i got to be willing to give it. i got to be willing to give it. i got to be willing to say, you know what, my mom was like me sick too. And i got to be willing to let my mom off the hook. Forgive us our trespasses, as, at the same time, as, in the same way, as, to the same degree. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. i got to be willing to let her off the hook. i got to be willing to say to myself, man, if, if I was her and he left and I'm living in this deal, and now all of a sudden from middle-class suburbia, I'm a welfare mom, and he's out doing what he wants to do, and he don't even come around once or twice a week to help with the kids, I mean, it might make me crazy. And I might be a little crazy, and this little mini-him walks through the room. You know, mini-me shows up, you know. I mean, it would probably make you a little nuts. My son is the double of me, right? And I tell my wife all the time, you're lucky you like me. Because <laughs> if you didn't like me, you'd hate him. <laughs> you know? I mean, can you imagine? No, I don't forgive my mom right away. I don't love my mom right away. There's a journey in Alcoholics Anonymous that runs right through the amends process that enables my mom and I to have the relationship we have today. But I begin to understand my mom. It is better to understand than to be understood. I begin to see a little understanding, a little, ah, you know, if I was in mom's shoes, 
I might have behaved that way. We ask God to help us show him the same tolerance, patience, pity we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. This is a sick man or woman. How can I be helpful to him? Sick like me. And a beginning, a crack in the wall starts to appear for my mom. I cry a few tears and I think, you know, I've been hard on my mom and maybe I can start spending time with my mom and there's some amends i got to make to my mom. And we talk about that. And then he says, let's talk about your dad again. I said, what? Let's talk about your dad. Okay. Sheldon, do you think your mom got that way right away when he left? Or do you think she was like that a little bit before he left? I don't know. I don't know is a good answer. You don't know. It's as possible as the case you have built up against him, isn't it? Okay. I'll buy. Is it possible that they got married right after the war in the early 60s when your dad was still, conscription was still going on in England and he was sent away to the Air Force? Is it possible they married quickly as people did in England at that time before he really knew her? Okay. Maybe. Is it possible when they moved in together and he realized that he'd married someone that was struggling in some emotional and, 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 and mental ways. Is it possible that it got uncomfortable for him and he would have left, but he stayed because that's what you do? Is it possible he stayed as long as he could and then she got pregnant with your older brother? And so he stayed. Is it possible that he stayed with her until he was two years old and maybe she could have made it on her own if he only sent money? And he was getting ready to leave, but then she got pregnant with you. Is it possible? Well, I don't know. All right, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Is it possible? It's possible. Maybe. I don't know. Is it possible that when you were born, your dad stayed till you were two years old and he left? And when he left, he didn't leave and stay in town where he would have had to defend his reputation. By telling everybody she was a little nutty. But he left and he first went to London 200 miles away and then to California 6,000 miles away. So she could maintain her dignity. He could be the bastard and he wouldn't be there to have to contradict that. Is it possible? Yeah. It's possible. Sheldon, if you were your dad, what would you have done under that scenario? Hell, she'd have got pregnant with my older brother and had a run. And on my way out, I'd have made sure that every SOB in that town knew she was the problem. I'd have come back regularly to be super dad and show up and make sure that everybody understood she was the problem. What would I have done? Here's what I did when I was 16 years old. I became an emancipated adult. I took a backpack, shoved it with newspapers, put some clothes on the top, rubbed mud on my face, went down to social services, and I said, I'm living with a crazy person. You have to get me out. She's thrown me out of the house. I have nowhere to go. They put me on welfare early. They got me an apartment, and they gave me money to set up the apartment. Because the minute I was old enough to go, the second I could go, I ran. What would I have done? There'd be no second kid. I guarantee you that. What would I have done? I don't forgive my dad right away. I don't even know if it's true, to be honest with you. But is it possible? 
Is it possible that the very thing that I have hung my life on, the very thing that I am certain about, the thing that has driven almost every decision in my life, is it possible I'm wrong about that? And then we do the rest of my foster. What else might I be wrong about? Is it possible I'm right about anything? <laughs> I mean, how long does one guy got to be, for God's sakes, you know? I get some understanding from my dad. Fast forward 12 years, 10 years, less than that, five years. My wife and I have our first son, our only son. We have our son. My mom could have retired anywhere she wanted to in the world. They were set, not wealthy, wealthy, but they were okay. She chose to live in Las Vegas so she could be near her grandson. I got no delusions, not so she could be near me, but I could have stopped it. I could have gotten away. And our relationship was good enough to allow her to show up. And our relationship has improved since then. My dad retired also in Las Vegas. My dad and I have had some rocky times. It has not all been smooth sailing. Um, <laughs> i tell you a funny thing. I don't often share this when I'm doing four-step studies, but I'll tell you this. I learned later in my sobriety that most of what I had thought about my dad turns out was true. And that the if-it's-possible story about my dad being this saint was crap. He was chasing women, and he left because he didn't want to have the responsibility of two kids. That's why he left. And I could have missed it all. I could have gotten to be right about that. It could have been proved to be accurate. I could have shot God out, shut you out, shut everything out, missed the whole thing, known that I was right, and I could have been completely turned upside down. But God let me imagine. God let me believe that I might be wrong about that. He let me let my dad off the hook so he and I could have a relationship. And i got to tell you, I dig having a relationship with my dad. I'm not mad that I was that, that was spiritual trickery and that God decided to fool me into having my daddy back. You know? Well, I'm the loser there, you know? I, you know? I mean, I don't know about you, but standing here today at 42 years old, 40 years of history, that two-year-old got his mommy and his daddy back in his life because of this was our cause out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if that ain't a miracle, I don't know what is. And if that by itself, if that's all I got out of AA, that would be enough. That would be enough. That's not all I got. I got, I, I, those of you that know me and know my life, I got, you, you just met my wife for crying out loud. How's that happen? I got a beautiful son. I have a family. I have a family. I didn't have a family. I have a family. Christmas, Thanksgiving, everybody's at our house, around our table. Mom, dad, their spouses, brother, who's sober in AA. It don't make no sense. It don't make, don't try and explain a miracle. Don't try and explain a miracle. I was telling a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, and, and, and I love this. I said to him, you know, if some of the stories I know in AA, not, some of the stories I know in AA, if they made a movie about them, right? And we went and saw the movie. We'd walk out of the movie, and one of us would turn to the other and go, good movie, but a little far-fetched. <laughs> and, uh, 
I mean, God, that could never happen, but great writing, you know. And I know, I know hundreds of those stories, and I know tens of those people personally. Personally. What a crazy deal. What a crazy deal. book goes on to say we never have... We avoid retaliation or argument. We wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but God at least will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view. Now, what do we do? What's the action we do? After this was our cost, we do this was our cost, then what do we do? Referring to all this, putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done, putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done. We resolutely look for our own mistakes. It's the second time he tells us to ignore the other person. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Though a situation not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person entirely. That's the third time. Where were we to blame? Just us. That's the fourth time. The imagery was ours, not the other man's. That's the fifth time. It tells us five times that we're to look at ourselves and only ourselves and nothing else. We're to look at with my dad. If my dad had been the perfect dad, let's pretend. What kind of son was I? I wasn't a good son. I wasn't a good son. I didn't call him, see how he was doing. I didn't check on him. I, I disrespected him. I held resentments towards him that were un, untenable and unreasonable from years past of things he couldn't control. I know that the story that I made up and let him off the hook with wasn't true, but, but, but you know, i got to tell you, he's been chasing women and getting in trouble all his life. That's a whole different obsession that he's got. Some in the room suffer from that one. That's a bad deal. Right? You've, you've been suffering for, and so he's, he's got his own deal, but I didn't look at that. I, I held him to a standard he couldn't possibly live up to. And then, and then was mad at him because he wouldn't live up to it. And in AA, sometimes we use a phrase that makes me crazy. My sponsees will say it to me, or guys in AA at meetings will say, I'm gonna look for my part. Oh really? Yep. I'm spiritual. I'm going to look for my part. Here's the hole. Here's the problem. Which one's the part? If I was to look for a part and I was to say, do you identify the part? Would he be this one? (laughs) No. This would be the part because I still think they're more to blame. I'm going to look for my part. Right? We know who's the bad guy. Because I got 12 golden steps and a sponsor and a home group and a home group and I have commitments. So I'm just going to look for my part. And what the big book says for me to do is to make that the whole thing. Make that the whole thing. Through that, I can begin to grow. If I do that, I can begin to survive. If I do that, I can then start to allow this magic to come in. I can begin, perhaps, I can begin to become one of many. The book goes on to talk about fear. It's the next list that we write, and it says, this short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. And, you know, if you, on 65, you all know that, uh, that three-column list that Bill writes, the example. And on effects mine, he's got all the effects, the sexual issues, self-esteem, security, personal relationships, all that stuff. And bracketed along every name is fear. 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 It touches every area of my life. Fear. 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 Well, what, what does that mean? It says, the book says that, that this evil and corroding thread, the very existence of our life was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. What is a resentment? 
other than misfortune that I felt I didn't deserve. I just wrote a list of my misfortunes I felt I didn't deserve, the stuff you did to me, right, or refused to do for me. I got this whole list of this stuff. So, so why is that so tied in with, with, with resentments? I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to get a picture of the way that I am in my life. It's kind of like the chicken and the egg. Which one came first? The fear or the resentment? You know what happens? Is that I wake up in the morning with a fear. Right? I wake up in the morning with afraid that my boss doesn't like me. Now, I don't know where that fear comes from. It just comes. I mean, you know, deep inside me, in my DNA, ingrained in me, is this idea that I don't like me. Why the hell should you? So I wake up in the morning convinced that my boss don't like me. Now, I'm afraid. I'm afraid, and I'm afraid. My ego grabs a hold of this fear, and it drives me. I'm driven by a hundred forms. It drives me to work, and I get to work. And now you know what I'm doing? I'm looking for evidence that the fear is real. That's what i got to do, don't I? I mean, because otherwise I'm a neurotic lunatic, and I ain't admitting that. Right? Right? Because then I need therapy, and I don't want therapy. i got enough problems, right? So what I need is i got the fear, and now I need evidence that the fear is real. And if you stand and look at a human being as intensely as I do, under this magnifying glass that I put on the world, for the eight hours in the day, five days a week, 50 weeks of the year, that I am with my boss, with this fear he doesn't like me, Mother Teresa would do something that would make me go, aha. He walks in the room and, and doesn't say hi because he's got something on his mind. See, I was right. Now the fear becomes a resentment, but the fear's still there. He says hi to somebody else. Or he says, good job, good job, Ron, you did a great job. And I'm thinking, what about me? See, see, now I have a, ha, aha, I was right. I get those aha moments, right? Aha, I knew it. I just, you see, and then I go to my sponsor, and I don't go to my sponsor about the fear. I go about the resentment. I'm mad at my boss. Why? Because he did this, this, and this. My sponsor says, find out how he takes his coffee, get him a cup of coffee, be nice to him, do something, treat him right, you know, but I still get the, so I get over the resentment. Right? I'm over the resentment. I go back to work. I still got the fear. So I've forgiven him. Now I'm magnanimous because now I've forgiven the guy I'm afraid of, which makes me wonderful. All right? And I can live with wonderfulness for, you know, I don't know, about a week or two. But then i got to start looking again. You know? I caught him again. And I go back to my sponsor and I keep doing these resentment lists on people because I'm getting over the resentment, but I'm still locked up in the fear. I'm afraid that my wife don't like me. Oh, don't get caught up in that one. You'll ruin your marriage. Afraid my boss don't like me. You'll be looking for a job. Afraid my home group don't feel like I fit in. How many home groups have you had? Afraid my parents don't respect me. When was the last time you fought with them? I mean, if you're reliving like I relive the same resentment over and over again, i got to stop and go, wait a minute, what's the fear? What's the fear? Because it ain't about the resentment. What's the fear? My life is shot through with it. We think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. I've had a lot of fears drive my life. One fear that I had was when we got married, I didn't want kids. It's a lot of work, and I'm not interested. I'm, 
I'm, I'm 30 years old. I, 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 I don't want to do it. My, my dad left. I'm afraid. I don't know how to be a dad. I'm afraid. I'm just like him. I'm afraid if it gets hard, I'll leave. I'm afraid of being a dad, and I don't want to be a dad. And I'm a closer. I'm a salesman. You know, I think I got my wife closed on this idea. We're going to retire early and travel, honey. You'll love it, right? But she keeps bringing up the idea of having kids, and I'm going to my sponsor. I'm like, you know, every time she, she sees the truth, right, she comes back with that, but I want a kid thing. He says, you want to keep married, you better give her a kid. And I dig the chick, so what the hell? <laughs> I know when I got a good thing. I married up. I ain't letting her go, you know. I, it ain't happening. So so what do I do? And besides, I'm not capable of the behavior that would be required for me to determine that we're not having kids. Right? Like, like how long am I going to hold out for? <laughs> right? Right? I could control that for about you know, weak. <laughs> but, but, but so she talks me into having this kid, and I'm terrified, and I don't want to have a kid. And today, nine years later, stood here, I will tell you that the very central, most beautiful and fantastic part of my life is that I'm that little boy's dad, and I almost missed it all because I was afraid. Or to be classed with stealing, you don't even know. It, fear almost cost me my relationship with my wife when that relationship was, very, was, was just starting. Fear has cost me jobs, friendships, relationships, because I get these resentments and then I throw the good stuff away because I get this fear that it's not going to work out. It almost, I, I don't know nothing. I think I know. But it's the same, for me to think I know what's good for me is, you know, what, what do I think is good for me? Booze and crack? I mean, my track record. My track record of me knowing what's good for me is a bad track record. It's not like, you know, well, you know, I know what's good for me. I've got uh, a degree in medicine. I mean, no, I don't. I, you know, I, when the economy went bad in my office, I told the guys, I'm ahead of you guys. I'm not. Well, they go, why? I said, because you guys, if you lose everything, have lost everything. I know how to feed a family out of a dumpster. <laughs> And everything I don't know, I got 600 friends here tonight that can tell me. I'll be okay. You know? I don't know what's good for me. Perhaps there's a better way. It says we think so. For we're now on a different basis. Now we're on a different basis. Since we did step three, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We're in the world to play the role that he assigns. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would let us. I love that. Because I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't. There's a beautiful poem that was read at my home group five years ago. And and I I don't remember the poem, but I remember the one line. And it was written by by a a nun. And the one line is something like, I don't know what pleases you, Lord, but I think my trying to please you pleases you. And that if I do what I think God would have me do, even if I'm wrong, he looks down and he goes, well, knucklehead's trying. (laughs) Knucklehead's trying. So, so we were in the world to play the role of science. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely upon him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? That these problems, when they come down the pike, are things that I can deal with at an even keel. The calamity, the problems, the difficulties, that I can match those with a, I mean, I'm scared, but I'm going to be okay. I'm scared, but I'm going to be okay. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. And the fellowship, I learned something bad. I thought that faith means that, that, that faith means no fear. 
And I, I was wrong. And I'm glad I was wrong. Because I'd sit in meetings and people would say, when, when fear knocks and faith answers, there's nobody there. And I'm thinking I'm doing something wrong. Because I think I got faith and I'm terrified. I wake up in the morning scared to death. I get out of bed first thing, walk across the living room, the, the bedroom floor. I'm afraid the sunlight's going to come in the room, light up my gut, and my wife's going to go, oh, my God, I married a fat guy and leave. You know? I mean, and that's where it starts and it goes from there. You know? I mean, God, not to have fear, that's ridiculous. You know? But I got, I mean, I got faith. I believe in this power. I'm connected. So what does that mean? The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. Of all places, a fortune cookie, right? I love Chinese food. Of all, of all places, a fortune cookie. Courage. The ability to do the right thing in spite of fear. Bango. Courage. The ability. I got that out of a fortune cookie. That was a great fortune. I should have played the numbers on the back. Because I bet, I bet them were winning numbers. <laughs> I bet them were winners. Right? Courage. The ability to do the right thing in spite of fear. Verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. Faith means I have the ability to do the right thing in spite of being scared to death. And that God will carry me as I'm afraid. That God will carry me as I'm afraid. Now, I can live with that. I can live with that. The last list in the fourth step is um, the sexual imagery. And uh, when I first saw that there was a sexual imagery in the, in, the, in the fourth step, I was very confused. I didn't understand why that would matter. And from hearing many fourth steps and from sharing my fourth step and hearing many fifth steps and sharing my fifth step, I've learned something very simple. And this may or may not be the only reason, and you may or may not agree with me, but it is my experience. The reason the sexual imagery exists in, the, in, in, in this place is because it is the place where I am the most resentful. It is the place where I am the most afraid. It is the place where I'm going to be driven the most by the things that I am trying to learn to turn over to God more than anywhere else in my life. If you sponsor guys or gals, you know as well as I do that if they're mad at their boss, the phone rings at 7 in the morning. If they're mad at the kids, the phone rings at 8 in the morning. If it's him or her, it's 3 in the morning. Right? That's the thing that makes us the most crazy. It is where I am likely to act the worst. So I go through that sexual imagery and I can see how I have behaved in my life clear, stark examples of where resentments and fear have driven me to behave in ways that I would not be proud of, that I would not be proud of, selfish, afraid, self-centered, and terrified, and terrified. Um, there's a lot that we could say about, about the sexual imagery, but in the essence of time, I'm just going to leave, I'm going to leave that and skip over to step five. It kind of bugs me that step five is in the chapter into action. Right? I mean, I feel like I've done a lot so far. Right? What an insult. My, my fourth step was not action. Right? But this is the first time that I'm going to bring somebody else in. This is the first time that I'm going to, before now it's been me and me and God and, and me 
And now I'm going to bring another person in the mix. I'm going to make this somehow three-dimensional, somehow real, somehow in the physical world. I'm going to anchor it in today where I live, in the, in the now. I'm going to bring it into the now. So, so the book says that now these things are, we're going to do our personal inventory. Um, put, we're, here we put our finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. Now these things are about to be cast out. This requires action on our part, which when completed will mean that we have admitted to God, to ourselves, to another human being, the exact nature of our defects. The exact nature of our defects. It's a different word than, uh, than Bill used on 59 in the, in the steps where in step five he said, admit to God, to ourselves, another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Um, step six, we're entirely ready to remove all of these defects. That's where he used defects. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. He uses three different words. Um, you can have great lengthy discussions about what those words mean and the difference between them. I think you're wasting your time, but you can have those discussions. Uh, Bill, Bill, Bill said in the grapevine one time that he used different words to mean the same thing because he didn't want us to get bored reading, which is funny if you've read the book. Because there's more he could have done on that, couldn't he? <laughs> he? He could have worked harder to make it a light read. <laughs> but at least he gave us that, you know. At least, at least we got the three words. <laughs> uh, we'll be more reconciled in discussing ourselves with another person when we see good reason why we should do so. The best reason first. If we skip this vital step, we might not overcome drinking. That's right. It's about drinking. Kind of forget about that a little bit when we get to this part. But it's about drinking. I had a friend of mine who, who I, uh, Bob had sponsored him, and he got drunk. And then Craig had sponsored him, and he got drunk. And then I sponsored him, and these guys are ahead of me on the line. I'm thinking, I'm going to show them. Now we're, now we're going to get him sober. He, uh, this kid would come up to me, and he would say, he would say, I got something to talk to you about. I go, what's that? And he'd go, oh, never mind. And he'd walk away. And they'd come back a week later. I got something I can talk to you about. I go, okay. I'd go, oh, never mind. I talked to Craig and Bob, and they'd say, yeah, he's doing the same thing there was. Same thing there was. And then he drank. And he was doing everything. Sponsoring guys, going to, going to detoxes. I mean, working. The, he did the steps. We did a fifth step, I thought. Doing all this stuff. The book says, time after time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts about their lives. Trying to avoid this humbling experience, they've turned to easier methods. Almost invariably, they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of the program, they wondered why they fell. We think the reason is that they never completed their house cleaning. Oh, they took inventory, all right, but they hung on to some of the worst items in stock. They only thought they had lost their egotism and fear. They only thought they had humbled themselves. They only thought they'd humbled themselves. They'd not learned enough of humility, fearlessness, and honesty in the sense we find necessary till they told someone their life story. In step seven, I'm going to humbly ask God to remove my defects of character. It doesn't tell me how to get humble because it assumes that I learned that lesson in step five. There is an assumption that the humility is learned through, through the fifth step work because that's where we learn enough of humility and the kind that we find it necessary. So we must be entirely honest with somebody 
if we expect to live long or happily in this world. And I don't just want to be sober. I don't want to just live long, but I want to do it happily. In, in, in Gail's fantastic thing last night, she was talking about Bill and Bob, how they were free and they were laughing and relaxed. You know, the guys I hang out with in AA and the gals I know in AA are free. And we laugh and poke fun at ourselves and each other. And it's a fantastic deal. If we want to live long and happily, we have to do this. So we think well before we choose this person. We have to do that. We search our inventory, the book says. We, we, excuse me, we search our acquaintance for a closed-mouthed understanding friend. We need someone that will be closed-mouthed, someone that will keep a confidence. Now, since I've been sober, I've shared everything from the podium that was in my fifth step in front of thousands of people. No exaggeration, I just have. Even the weird stuff, I just have, because I thought it was necessary and it would be helpful. I just have. So it wasn't because that stuff had to be kept secret, but it was because if I thought the person I was sharing with would have talked, I wouldn't have told them everything. So you need to find someone you think you can trust because you're going to be asked to share everything. And if you don't trust the person, don't do it with them. Find someone you believe will keep a confidence. The rule is, when we share this stuff, that, we're, that we are always going to be hard on ourselves and tell the truth. Easier on other people and hard on ourselves. It's important that this person be able to keep a confidence, number one, that he fully understand and approve of what we're driving at, number two, and they're not trying to change our plan. Obviously, the best thing to do would be to find somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous. I would never recommend anything other than that. Someone that, that, that you know has a program, has a sponsor. Someone that, that you work, that you, probably your sponsor would be the best. Somebody that's involved in your home group. And then you ask yourself these three questions. Do I believe they'll keep a confidence? Do they understand and approve what I'm driving at? Are they, are they people working out of the big book? Have they done it themselves? And will they not try to change our plan? Not trying to change our plan is important. You know, back in the day, they used to do uh, inventories with religious people. And our book even says, listen, if you want to go talk to your clergy, you should do that. If, if you have in your faith where you do confession, you should do the confession. You shouldn't do it instead of this. You should do it as well as this. You can add anything you want to the program. Just please don't exchange anything out. Add anything you want. Don't exchange anything out. But if you go to a clergy, you know, you might go, and I don't know much about the Catholic faith. A lot of Catholics here, I'm sure there's a lot of drunk Catholics for some reason, right? But, but maybe you go to a Catholic priest and maybe you'll share your, your, your imagery with them. And maybe they won't be fans of Alcoholics Anonymous. And maybe they'll give you some prayers or some rituals to do for which you will then be forgiven. I, I was raised in the Jewish faith. In the Jewish faith, we have that. We have a, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Uh, we, we only do this once a year. Because as in everything else, Jews don't pay retail. We deal in wholesale. <laughs> so, 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 so you guys do it once a week or once a month. That's good for you. We go once a year. Once a year, we have this, this time of year from the, from the new year from Rosh Hashanah out to Yom Kippur where, where in this time period we do some, some stuff. And then on Yom Kippur is the day of atonement where we, we say sorry for our sins and, and God grants his absolution. And the way that this works, not so much today we've gotten away from this, but back in the day what they would do is they would take some, 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 some special bread and they would say some special prayers over the special bread. And then they would take the bread and they would put it in a stream and the stream would carry your sins out of town and with the bread would go the bad part of you and you'd be okay for the next year. Now, 
we spent most of our history in the desert where there weren't a lot of streams. <laughs> so we had to figure out another way. And so what they would do is they would take a goat, sprinkle the bread on the goat, slap the goat's ass, the goat would run out of town taking the sins with you, which is great, unless spanking goats is on your inventory, and then what do you do? <laughs> the goat spankers died, I guess, is what happened. Hey, that's, that's the one sin you cannot be forgiven for. Oh, you're a goat spanker, huh? It's, just, it's, a, bad, it's a bad deal. It's just a bad deal. <laughs> now, all that stuff is great, Unless the rabbi says in Sheldon, you don't have to do amends 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. All that stuff is great in addition to. But it's when somebody tries to change our plan that that's a bad deal. So we prepared for a long talk. Our partner, we tell him why we have to do this. He should realize that we're engaged in a life or death errand. Um, most people approach this way will be glad to help. They will be honored by the experience. The truth is is that I learned more about me and grew more in the fifth steps I have heard than in the one I shared. The one that I shared, I still had stuff to defend. I was still a little cagey, didn't know my sponsor real well yet. It was a new relationship, so I wasn't as open as I could have been. Now I have guys that I share a fifth step with, and while I'm being spiritual, well, here's what you should do, but I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, I did that. I'm going to do that. I got plans in an hour to do that. <laughs> so by hearing Fifth Steps, it is an honor, and it is something that helps those of us that are further along in the path greatly. It is a big, big deal. Finally, returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour. Carefully, we're doing what we have done. We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better because we will, whether we think so or not. Taking the book down from the shelf, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps, carefully reviewing the first five proposals. We ask ourselves if we have admitted anything. When I shared my fifth step, I had. I woke up the next morning, and I was a little crazy, and I go to my sponsor, and he goes, Oh, my God, why didn't you tell me? And I told him, and it wasn't the big stuff. It was the little pathetic stuff, the humiliating and embarrassing stuff. But that happens a lot, so it's good to do this part. So if anything's been forgotten, you can share that with your sponsor. We're building a, an archway through which we can walk a free man. Is our work solid so far? Have we tried to make mortar without sand? Getting through um, steps four and five, the promise is at the end that I, it says in here that I can look the world. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. We can look the world in our eye. Our fears, fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. I tell you this, before step four and five, when I met you, one of the things that I did was I sized you up. And I decided if I thought you were better than me or worse than me. Here's me, you're better than me, you're worse than me. Now I'm going to decide how to treat you according to whether you're better than me or you're worse than me. Never did I ever consider that you were the same as me, ever. And the lesson that I began to learn in step five is that I'm one of God's kids. And I'm no, not, not terribly, terribly worse or any better, but that I'm one of God's kids. And that God loves me and he loves you, and, and it can be okay. My wife's sponsor says something that just tickles me. She says, we're just another bozo on the bus. And for the first time in my life, for a guy that didn't fit, didn't belong, was afraid and alone, 
to find out that I'm just another bozo on the bus and that I fit and I belong. That's a hell of a deal for a guy like me. I am honored to be here. Thank you for my life.